Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. CBC family. We're the Petersons. I'm Pete. And I'm Pam. And here is a blessing from our family to yours. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Have a great Sunday. collective just answer one word answer how's everybody doing that sounds good to me great and good is pretty much what i heard uh i'm doing okay my family uh is actually traveling around the country right now uh they have they just went to memphis and they went to nashville and now they're in Asheville. um and so i'm here and they're there so i'm doing okay i'm doing okay uh no, so I'm, my name is Nick. I'm the youth pastor here. And so uh, I get to teach up here every once in a while. And it always makes me really happy. I get really excited to do it. Um, so uh, today we're going to continue what we talked about last week in Numbers 13. We're going into Numbers 14. But before we do that, I have a middle school dance story for you. These are always good, right? These are always good. Uh, so I, I went to middle school. My dad was in the Air Force. And so we lived all over the place. And in middle school, I lived in Italy. I know, it's terrible, right? It was awful. feel bad for me. Um, And so in my room, I lived in kind of like the basement, and this informs the the end part of the story. I had a window that like went up to this like metal grate that if you pushed really hard, you could get out. Uh, I usually didn't like to go in there because the first week we lived there, I found a rat in this little thing, and so I was kind of terrified of that place. So I usually didn't bother. Um, But that's, we'll get to that part later. So... My parents made a rule with me, right? Um, If I had certain grades, I could do things like go to this middle school dance. And we knew this dance was coming at the beginning of the first nine weeks. And so they said, if you get, I don't remember what it was. It was probably, maybe like, they probably, knowing me, they probably said, you can have one C and that's it. Um, And I ended up with several um, and maybe even a D, I don't remember, but it was bad. I did not do what they, you know, set up for me to do. I had, I, I, I failed. I screwed up. I didn't do it. And so they told me, Nick, you can't go to the dance. And kind of hurt a little bit. I, 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 for some reason, I loved going to dances. It was like the end all for me. It was like Disney World for me. It was so exciting. I would wear weird clothing um, and I would, I would dance with people and I would work up the courage to go and ask girls that I liked to dance and it was great. I loved it. And the music was great. You know, it was the early 90s, and so that's when the best music existed, right? And so I really was very excited to go and dance to Whoop There It Is. You know, that was, that was what I was, was dreaming about it. Uh, but I, I, I didn't do it. I didn't, I didn't make the grades. And so Dad said, no, 
Can't go. So I thought, maybe if I apologize real hard, like really just go all in, work up some tears, do the best that I possibly can to just fall on my face and feel sorry, they might change their mind. And this, there's precedent for this in my family. My mom was kind of like really hard up front and then soft you know, like, she would get really like, no, you can't do this, and then she'd see me cry, and then she'd be like, I don't know, Dennis, maybe, maybe we can let him go. Um, so I did it. I went all in. That night after dinner, I said, Mom and Dad, I really want to talk to you. I just I, I want to let you know that I feel so terrible. I'm, I, I don't know why I do these things. I just don't get it. I tried my best, and it just doesn't work out. I probably did better than, than I just did. I think I actually got some tears going. Um, I do believe... And I'm not proud to admit this. I'm pretty sure I got on my knees at one point um, in the apology, just doing everything I could to really work up that apology mercy, right? And after the show, uh, I think my mom said something like, she, I think she did go with the, Dennis, maybe, maybe, maybe we can talk about this. And he was like, no, he can't go. He did not make his grades. He can't go. If we let him go, he has no incentive to work on his grades. And they ended the conversation kind of on a wishy-washy note where I felt like I had some hope, right? Where mom was still saying, well, we're going to talk about this. And dad was saying, well, I guess we are, but the answer is still going to be no. And then they got into an argument, and I slinked away and decided that I had a minor victory. And so the night before, the, day, the, the dance was on a Friday, so Thursday... I start getting excited because they hadn't really talked about it, which kind of felt like for me that there was some hope and that maybe I was actually going to get to go. And so Thursday night, I start setting out my outfit, right? I pick out my baggiest blue jeans that I can possibly find, um, the ones that are a little bit long in the waist so that I can sag them down just a little bit. It was the 90s. This is what people did. Uh, I had my shiniest Dallas Cowboy jersey ready to wear. Uh, it was really cool, and I had a cool blue bandana. I remember this outfit so clearly because I was amped to wear it, and I knew that the eighth-grade ladies were going to love it. <laughs> and so the day of the dance, um, I get home from school, and I go to mom, and I'm like, and I know to go to mom. No, don't, don't go to dad. Get, go to the mom because she's going to give me the answer I want. And I'm like, okay, mom, tonight's the dance. I got my friend coming to pick me up. Is everything, am I, am I, can I go? You, you guys have been thinking about it. Can I go? And mom was like, you got to talk to your dad. And I was like, dang it. It's the worst answer to a question. You got to talk to your dad. Nobody wants to hear that question answer. It's the worst. So I go talk to dad and he is as firm as he was ever just saying, absolutely not. You can't go. I tried a little bit of the pleading again, but it was worthless. He was, there was no chance. And so I go to my room and I slam the door. And then I come up with this brilliant plan. I'm going anyway. I already laid out my outfit. My friend is coming to pick me up at my driveway at 6 o'clock. I could probably do it, right? I've got this cool door window thing that I can go out my window, sneak out, and just go down to the driveway, have my cool outfit on, go come back about 9 o'clock, they'll probably expect me to be brooding and angry in my room for three hours, right? Should be fine. So I get dressed. I get dressed. I arrange some pillows in the bed to look like I'm just sleeping in case they do open the door to check on me. 
And I go up the little thing. I open the window. I go up the little grate. And I'm feeling pretty excited, feeling pretty cool and rebellious and ready to break the rules and do something fun, right? And uh, I climb up. I shimmy up this thing. And I get on the porch. And I hear Dad's voice saying, where are you going, son? <laughs> he, he was a brilliant man. Or maybe I was an idiot, probably a combination of the two. He guessed it. He guessed it. He sat out on the porch waiting for me to do this. And I just sort of slinked back down, went to my room, and felt like a moron. I really felt like he was being unfair. It really felt like he was being too hard on me. Like, what's the big deal? Let me, let me do what I want to do. As we're reading this story, I want you to think about this question. Last week, I want you to, last week we talked about God's promises, right? We talked about um, what if we lived, in, lived our daily life like God's promises were true. Today, I want you to think about this question as we go through this story. Is God merciful or is God vengeful? Is God merciful or is God vengeful? In Numbers 13, the story was they sent the spies into the land of Canaan to see if everything was good. They came back with a bad report. It's good, but it's dangerous. We can't go there. And Caleb and Joshua try to tell them, yes, we can. We can do it. God's promises are true. We got to walk in God's promises. And they say, no, we're not going. And we end that story in the middle of a debate between Caleb and the other guys in the, in the group that went out and spied the land, where they're exaggerating the story now. It's not just that there were big people there. It's that everybody is enormous, and the, the cities devour its inhabitants. They were inflating the problems, and Caleb was trying to explain to them, it doesn't matter how big the problem is. We can go because God goes with us. And so at the beginning of 14, we see this argument continue. It says in verses 1 through 4, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let's talk about Moses for a quick sec. Moses was born in Egypt. He was almost killed as a child, and then he was rescued and lived for 40 years in the house of Pharaoh. Right? That's a pretty sweet little, little backstory. And then he decides, because he's, he's kind of swelled with some pride, he decides, I'm going to rescue my people, and he starts attacking Egyptians who are, or mistreating Israelites. And eventually he's driven out of the city and he goes for 40 years and lives as a shepherd in nowhere town Midian, right? For 40 years, he has to work for his father-in-law. He has a family, he has children, and he is in no way the leader of anything. He is in no way the rescuer of anyone. And if you look at it, it seems like he was pretty content in this life. Seems like everything was going well. And then one day he sees a fire in a bush, in a mountain. And God reverses all of that and says, no, you are the one who's going to rescue. No, you are the one that's going to take them out. And at this point in Moses' life, he doesn't really want to anymore. He's older. 
He doesn't feel like he has the charisma. He doesn't feel like he's able to speak to these people. He, he has no idea how this is even possible. And he kind of rejects it and says, no, God, I can't do that. And God does this thing where he sort of swells up and get a little, little you know, robustness to his voice and says, no, you're right, but I'm going to go with you. I will do it through you, is what he says. And so Moses gives in because when God yells at you, you do what he says. So Moses takes the people out of Egypt. God brings them out. Moses is leading them. And he, you know, is relatively successful. The people sort of like him here in the beginning. And he, you know, puts his staff in the water, crosses the Red Sea. God is doing all these wonders. And they keep complaining. So God gives them food. They complain some more. God gives them water. They complain even more. God gives them meat. This, there's this routine, right? Things don't go exactly like the Israelites want, so they complain to Moses. Moses goes, God, what am I supposed to do? He's like, watch, I'll take care of it, and he does. So Moses takes them to Sinai, gives them this law. They, give them, they build this thing called the Tent of Meeting where God's glory can sort of show up and Moses can go talk to him. They've got everything they need. They show up to Canaan. Now we see this rebellion. And, and this isn't just the first time. They, tried, they rebelled at Sinai. They built that golden calf while he was receiving the law. And it's interesting is in that moment, God said to Moses, while it's happening, Moses is up on the mountain receiving this law, and God says to Moses, they're betraying me right now. And you know what? They're going to keep doing this. It's going to keep happening. So Moses is dealing with this grumbling people, this country, this nation of people that can't seem to figure out what they really want. And now he's also dealing, just in Numbers 12, his sister betrayed him and tried to get everybody against him. He's dealing with that. It seems that his wife has recently passed away. Things aren't going super well for Moses. Life is hard right now. It is difficult to lead these people. And now they want a new leader. If I were Moses in this moment, I might be like, you go ahead. Sounds good. I'm out. I can't do this anymore. How frustrating must it have been for Moses to hear this? Like all the things that he's brought them through, all the things that he's delivered them through, they still can't follow and trust. So Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb begin to beg the people to come to their senses. In verses 7 through 10, it says, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. The Lord delights in us. He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. It's a pretty good speech. They're making a lot of really good points. God will deliver us. God is bigger than all these things. All these people that are there, they are just food for us. We will be able to do this. There is nothing that can stop God's power. And their response in verse 10 is, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. They're ready to just shut them up. They don't want to hear it anymore. They're sick of it. They're ready to just destroy Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb because they're not going to give them what they want. They want to leave they don't want to deal with all this fighting. They don't want to go in and, and be destroyed by the large people in the land. They don't, they don't trust that God is bringing them where they should go. They don't trust Moses. They don't trust anybody. 
They only trust themselves, and themselves, they are saying, let's go home. And in this crescendo-type moment, it's nighttime, it's loud, there's, there's torches everywhere, it's dark, it's scary. You can hear the crowd begin to swell. People are picking up stones. Joshua, Caleb, Moses, and Aaron are on their knees begging them to stop. And in this moment, God appears in his glory in the tent of meeting. It just beams with light. Beams with light. It says in verse 10, But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And this was the sign that Moses knew, I need to go talk to God. So then it's quiet. When God shows up, people shut up. So Moses goes into the tent of meeting, and this is an interesting little moment because God sort of gets down on Moses' level and commiserates with him. And if I were Moses, I'm going to play back a little bit what I would sort of say in response to what God says. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? I'd be like, I know, this is ridiculous. They not only despise you, they hate me too. What is the deal? And how long will they not believe in me? I'm saying, look all the stuff that we've done. We parted the sea. There's food on the floor every morning. There was quail up to our knees. Like, what is the problem? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I'm like, I know, I just, I said all that. This is ridiculous. I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. Whoa, what? And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Oh, okay, hold on. Make, make me a nation? Me? You want to promote me? Okay, so no longer will it be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's going to be the God of Moses. That's what they're going to say from now on. My, my children will be the 12 tribes of Israel? Are we going to rename it Moses instead of Israel? How tempting, though. How tempting. Moses is frustrated. He's tired of this. They keep rebelling. They keep grumbling. They keep complaining. And God says, well, what if we just start over and put you at the head of everything? It'll be your kids and their kids and their kids that inherit the land instead of these people who are frustrating when I read this, I think, how tempting must it have been? Thank God I'm not Moses. Moses was so humble. He didn't even want the job in the first place. He, he definitely does not want this promotion of becoming the head of God's people. So Moses' response is far different than mine. Moses says in 15 to 19, if you kill this people as one man, the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses is addressing a possible PR problem for God. If God brings these people out into Egypt and then just destroys them, the people outside who don't know what's going on, who don't know the character of God, will see this Yahweh as a destroyer. They'll see this Yahweh as someone who just pours his wrath out on his people for no good reason. And because Moses 
knows the character of God. He knows that God can't do this. That God should not do this. That God should show them forgiveness, even though they don't deserve it. He does not make any argument that, look, it's not that big a deal. He doesn't make the argument that, "Ah, they've only done it just this one time. He doesn't claim any ounce of deserving of grace. He just says, I know who you are, and I know that you can forgive. So what does God do? 28 to 35, this is his, this is his decision. He says, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said, talking to Israel, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in the wilderness, and all your number listed in the census from 20 and up who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones, the ones that you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land you have rejected. But as for you, your body shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your bodies lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. This is what they wanted. He's not making up this punishment out of nothing. This is literally what they said. They said, would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. So he says, okay, you can stay in the wilderness. And it's your kids that are going to go, not you. So let's go back to the question. Is God merciful? Is God vengeful? How does a faithful and loyal God deal with such a rebellious people. Well, Moses hits on it a little bit here in verse 18 um, earlier when he says, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's quoting back to God, God's own words about himself. In Exodus 34, 6 to 7, Moses is on the mountain again for a second time, and God shows up. It says God appeared before him, and he passed in front of him, and the Lord introduces himself this way. In 34, 6 to 7, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. I want to talk quickly about these words, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, loyal love, and faithfulness. Over and over in the scripture, this is how people use These are the words people use to describe the character of God. In Nehemiah, Isaiah, Hosea, Psalms, Joel, Jonah, Nahum, Proverbs, Micah, over and over again, you find these words being used to describe who God is. So let's start with compassion. The Hebrew word for compassion is closely related to the word for the womb. Compassion like a mother to a child. This is how God feels about us wanting to take on our pain rather than let us feel it, wanting to provide for us in every way. But God is also our Father. My kids recently went to summer camp, and at summer camp they let you put some money in an account so that kids can go to the store and buy garbage things like nerd ropes and uh, milkshakes with candy in them. I don't know. I don't care. It's one week out of of their life. They'll eat broccoli the rest of it. 
So you put a little money in there so when they go, they have a little wristband and they just say, I want a soda and a milkshake and a nerd rope. And they're like, all right, scan your wristband and off you go. And I get to monitor this, right? I can watch exactly what they're buying when they're buying it, right? So after about the second day, my son was down to 45 cents. <laughs> and I told him, we both, Rachel and I talked to him and said, look, son, you can't spend that much right away. You're going to run out. We told him several times, and after two days, he had pretty much tapped it. And guess what my wife wanted to do? Add a little more money. Guess what my mom wanted to do? Add a little more money. Guess what my mother-in-law and my grandmother wanted to do? That's right. Add a little more money. Guess what I did? Nothing. No zero, zero dollars were added to that kid's account. And guess what? He came home and said he had a wonderful time. He had a trunk filled with candy that he'd still kept, the toys that he bought. I think he even had a little bit of a milkshake left in a cup. God is both our mother and our father. He is filled with compassion and wants to provide for us in every way, but also he is our father and he is stern and he will hold to his word. God is gracious. It says he is gracious. Grace, this word is grace, favor, delight. It's often a word used to describe a gift given with delight and favor, right? The most extreme version of this, of this grace is showing favor for someone who deserves justice, right? We see the story of Jacob, who is later named Israel, who betrays his brother, wanders for 20 years and wants to come back. He wants to come back into the land. He goes to his brother and he says, I don't deserve this. I'm asking for grace. And Esau gives it to him. He didn't have to, but he did. It takes a generous spirit. And no one is more gracious than our God. John describes Jesus as God's glorious grace come to life. When people are willing to own their failures and ask God for this grace, he has a consistent and generous response. You see, it's, grace is different from us just trying to grab and claim what God promised us without first seeking that forgiveness and repentance. For those who believe they deserve God's promise and reach out to claim what they think they should have, God offers justice rather than grace. The way we approach God matters. He's described as slow to anger. This is a weird one. Because slow to anger in the Hebrew actually means long of nose. When you're angry, it's often described that their nose is hot. Their nose burned hot. So it makes sense that someone who is long of nose would take longer for their nose to get hot. So when you see things like he is slow to anger, he is anger burned, it's really saying his nose burned or he is long of nose. It's kind of weird, but it's pretty funny. In Proverbs 19.11, it says, a person's wisdom is their slow anger, or the way you could read it, a person's wisdom is their long nose. So just like we would get angry to see someone bully or push our kids around, God gets angry when he sees people pushing us around, when people oppress each other. But because he is slow to anger, he gives people time to change. When Pharaoh and the Egyptians threw the Israelite children into the Nile. God did not come down swiftly with fire and lightning. His response was to bring up a boy named Moses. His response was to put Moses in charge of the house of Pharaoh and to lead him into the desert and then bring him back 80 years later. 
And even then, he does not bring Moses back with an army, but he brings them back with a phrase, let my people go. And he offers them chance after chance after chance, and they don't take it. And ultimately, he gives the Egyptians what they wanted. God's anger is shown by handing Pharaoh over to the consequences of his own decisions. And then Israel, over and over again, shows God that they want to be like the other nations. They want to serve their gods. They want to live like they live. So ultimately, God gives them over to be ruled by these nations. He gives them what they showed him they wanted over and over again. God hands people over to their destructive desires, but God always gives plenty of time for us to seek his grace and mercy. When my parents grounded me for having bad grades and telling me I can't go to the dance, it made a lot of sense. In order to get to that point, I had to do a lot of nothing to get bad grades. So they said, you want to do nothing? Well, get you what you get to do. Nothing. The best punishments, the punishments that make the most sense, the punishments that bring the most justice are those that give us what we seemed to desire. When God is angry and brings justice, it's because he is good and is extremely patient in working out his plan to restore people to his love. Speaking of which, steadfast love, loyal love, it's another way he's described. God rescues the Israelites because of this loyal love. He raises up Moses because of this love. And when the people reject Moses and want to stone him and appoint a new leader, Moses reminds God that he should forgive these people because of his loyal love. He doesn't ask God to forgive because they deserve it. He does it because he knows that God loves them. And because God is consistent with his character, he commits himself once again to a people who don't want to be committed to him. God is overflowing with loyal love, not because it be deserve it, but because it's just who God is. He wants his people to respond with loyal love back to him, but even when they don't, God's loyal love remains. Hosea, a prophet, describes our loyal love like a morning mist. It's here one minute, and it's gone the next. But God's love remains forever. Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. Lastly, God describes his character as faithfulness. The Hebrew word emet is closely related to the word amen. It has to do with stability, steadfastness, reliability, trustworthiness. Moses later describes God as a rock, faithful, just, and upright. Ultimately, of all these character traits, Jesus is the result of all of them, the fulfillment of God's many promises. So we ask the question again, is God merciful or is God vengeful? And the answer is yes. God's love is balanced with both mercy and justice. If you reject him enough, he will give you over to your own desires. And ultimately, this is what hell is a place without God. C.S. Lewis describes hell as being locked from the inside. Those that have chose not to follow God will continue to choose that for eternity. When we reject what God has for us, he gives us what we want instead. 
If you claim his rewards with a prideful heart, he will remove his protection from you, as he does here at the end of this story in Numbers 14, 39 to 45. When Moses told these words to all the people, they mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now? Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned your back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country anyway. Although neither the Ark of the Covenant or the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hell country came down and defeated them and pursued them. We deserve justice. We deserve to be pursued and defeated by our enemies. But if we own our failures... And call out for God's compassion, grace, patience, loyal love, and faithfulness. The character of God will be revealed in your life. I look at the ending of the story and I wonder if Israel had waited, owned their failures, called out for God's mercy. Maybe things would have been different. Maybe God's character would have been revealed to them. And they would have gone in. And now here we are, thousands of years later, and we are his church. And we are told to imitate Jesus, the fulfillment of all of these character traits of God. We are told to imitate them for the world around us. People ask questions like, why, does, why do terrible things happen? How are we supposed to fix all this? God's, God's answer is, is us, the church. He gave us his Holy Spirit, poured it out on us that we might take that compassion, grace, loyal love, faithfulness, all these things and bring it to the world that is living in darkness. Bring the light, bring the truth where there is dishonesty. We bring truth where there is hatred. We bring love where there is pain. We bring mercy. We are the arm of God in the world, bringing these things to people who need it. God will take care of the justice piece. We are called to be his loyally loving followers, trusting in God's faithfulness to redeem the world. Let me pray. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that your character is unshakable. God, I thank you that unlike us, you don't deal with identity questions like who am I but that you know who you are and you are always going to be that way that we can trust that no matter what we go through you will remain who you are and God I ask that you imbue that same steadfastness in us through the Holy Spirit that as we leave this place we can go and bring those things to the world who needs it God, that we might be your church, your gathering, your assembly that goes out and changes the world, bringing them closer to you. 
God, help us to forget ourselves and focus on you. God, help us to leave our preferences aside and follow your promises. God, help us not to just wander aimlessly, but to wander following you. We need you. We love you. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen.